So the next song I want to talk for a second about and set up is Joy to the World, which we're going to sing at the very end of this service. This was a a song also written by a Brit, uh, in this case Isaac Watts. He was a 17th century uh, physicist and mathematician. He's sort of very, very adept at those. He published a number of articles in those fields. But he decided, (laughs) not a great career move, but he decided he wanted to make it as a poet instead. Uh, That didn't work out so well, although he was a pretty significant poet. And indeed, this particular poem, Joy to the World, was picked up by Handel of Handel's Messiah, who wrote the music for it, so inspired by by the poem itself. So this uh, this is a poem, this is a song that is based on two passages of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9 and Psalm 98. Isaiah 9 is, uh, comes from the prophet Isaiah, which is a book in the Old Testament. Isaiah is generally considered to be the most significant Old Testament prophet. He lived about 700 B.C., had a 40-year run as a prophet, lived in the palace. Might sound like it was a pretty good gig, except being a prophet is never a good gig. It is not the job you want. So in the Old Testament, God tended to govern his people, the Jewish people, through three different offices. Prophet, prophets were those who were spokesmen for God to the people. Priests, priests were those who stood in for the people, representing them to God. And kings were those who covered the civic events. If things were going generally well, then the priests and the kings could keep things in line. It was when things were going poorly, or more specifically, It's when the people were lax in their devotion to God, when they didn't care about others, when they weren't fighting for the poor, when they were ignoring issues of injustice, that God sent the prophets. And the prophets had a very unpopular task. It was basically to say to the people, okay, uh, you're being selfish, you're being small-minded, you've got to raise your game here, you've got to be devoted to God. And so generally, they were not well-liked. Isaiah had a long run, but in the end, he was cut in two. That's sort of the way prophets end. Uh, It usually doesn't end well. So he had a lot of hard things to say, but he got to say some fun things as well. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he gets to say some fun things. This is where he reminds the people that God is going to send someone to fix things. The promise had been made all the way back in Genesis 4, and lots of other prophets had been saying this. Micah said that this guy, this guy, kid's going to be born in Bethlehem, and Samuel said he's going to be born in the line of David, and Hosea had said certain things. Lots of different people had different pieces. Isaiah comes along, says some things about how Christ is going to die, actually about 600 years before crucifixion is invented. Isaiah will describe Christ's death by crucifixion. But on a happier note, he describes his birth. And he said, he will, there's one that's coming who will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And you will know that, that this is the one because he will be born to a virgin. And so we've got that in Isaiah 9. And then we've got Psalm 98, which is a, a, which is a happy song. It's a song in which all of creation is sort of proclaiming the goodness of God. The trees of the fields are clapping their hands. Everybody, everybody, everything is sort of offering testimony, joy, excitement about God. So 
You see this come out in this song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Now, a few key words to key in on here. One of them is joy. And it's, it's, a, it's a big word and it's a surprising word. So here's the deal. If you haven't figured this out, you do not want justice with God. I do not want what I deserve when it comes to my relationship with God. I have been selfish. I have been an idiot. I have been a jerk. I have hurt people. I do not want justice. <laughs> not for a second. I want mercy. I want to not get the punishment that I deserve. And indeed, I want more than mercy. I want grace. I want blessings that I don't deserve. So the word for joy and the word for grace both have the same root, kara. Karas is grace, kara is joy. And so there's a sense in which when we get grace, when we get joy, it's surprising. It's, it's because generally you don't get any more than you pay for. You're happy to get what you deserve when it comes to good things. You don't get more than you pay for. You're surprised if you do. We are surprised by the joy that God sends his son to redeem us, to reconcile us, to pay our debt. Joy to the world. We're surprised by the good things that have happened. Surprise to the world. The Son of God has shown up. The King of Kings has shown up in order to fix things. Verse 2. Um, joy, to the, joy to the Lord. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. So the first verse is, is, is joy to the Lord. Jesus is, is King. Now he's Savior. Savior is another one of the, the big words you need to latch in on. So, a hundred years before Christ was born, the Jewish leaders got together to translate the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek. Alexander the Great had come by about a hundred years earlier. He had conquered everything. He wouldn't have a long run. The Greeks would eventually be taken over by the Romans, and they're, and they're going to have a Roman Empire. Alexander the Great basically put all of that together before he died. And one of the things that he said is, everybody that I've conquered has to speak Greek. So the Jews had to learn how to speak Greek, and they stopped learning how to read and write in Hebrew. So now there's this problem because their Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. And, and nobody can, except the scholars, but the priests and the rabbis can read it. And so they get together and they say, we're going to translate it into Greek so other people understand what it says. Well, when that happens, some interesting translation moments occur. One of them is when they try to figure out how to capture the word shalom. So shalom is a word that is used as a way of greeting, hello, but it, it means more than that, it means peace. And it actually doesn't just mean peace like no war, it means May you thrive, may you prosper, may you be healthy, may, may life really flourish for you. Well, when it came time to translate the word shalom out of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they didn't have a word. <laughs> they had a word for peace in Greek, 
It's irene, which gives us the word irenic, which means peaceful. But all that that really means is no war, no negative. It doesn't mean positive. And shalom means not only no negative, it means positive. They didn't have that word. And so they shopped around and they said, the word ultimately is soter, which is the word that gives us salvation. So here's what you need to know. The salvation that Christ is ultimately going to deliver is not simply when you die, you get to go to heaven, although there is a sense in which that really matters, right? We get forgiven of our sins, and we are granted eternity with God. But the salvation that Christ came for is much bigger than that. So I have a copy of Friday's Wall Street Journal. Some of you may have spotted this article. It's on the uh, opinion page. And it's called The Salvation of Napalm Girl. And it's written by Kim Fook Fan Thee. And she says, you know who I am. She says, you don't know me by my name. You know me by the name that I've spent 45 years trying to get rid of. Napalm Girl. No doubt you've seen my picture. In 1972, at the age of nine, I was running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier. I was photographed with arms outstretched, naked and shrieking in pain and fear. The dark contour of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance. She goes on to say that those bombs had burned her and caused immeasurable pain and that today, 45 years later, she continues to receive medical treatment for the burns that cover her arms, her back, and her neck. However, she says, the pain that I suffered physically was nothing compared to the emotional and spiritual pain that I suffered. For years, I bore the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward those who had caused my suffering. She goes on to say that her salvation experience occurred on a Christmas Eve in 1982 when she was attending a special worship service at a small church in Vietnam And the pastor, Ho-Hugh Ha, delivered a message that many Christians would find familiar. Christmas, she said, turned out to not be about the gifts we carefully wrap and place under a tree. Rather, Christmas is about the gift of Jesus Christ who was wrapped in human flesh and given to us by God. As the pastor spoke, I knew in my heart that something was shifting inside of me. A decade removed... From the defining tragedy of my life, I still desperately needed peace. I had so much hatred and bitterness in my heart. I was ready for love and joy. And she goes on on the pages of the Wall Street Journal to say that she decided to place her trust in Jesus Christ. And that next day, when I woke on that Christmas morning, I experienced my first ever heartfelt celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. She goes on to talk about the joy that she experiences in life. And the way she was able to move past the bitterness, to move past the resentment, to move past the hatred, to a place of having joy. I would submit to you that is part of what salvation is supposed to look like. And that is what Christ offers. Now, I don't know where you're at. You can read the Wall Street Journal article if you want. She would say, look, it's all about Jesus, and I had to discover that for myself, and so I submit to you. Do you know the joy that Jesus brings? Joy to the world, the Savior is born. Let men their songs employ, in other words, sing. 
Uh, While fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. This is right out of Psalm 98. The trees of the fields clapping their hands. So here he's got all the the trees are are repeating the sounds of joy. Verse 3, generally uh, in these hymns, verse 3 is the the more profound of the verses. It sort of sets up the crisis problem. And here he says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infect the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And, and if you read Isaiah 9, which is what this is coming from, you see that part of what, part of what uh, Watts is trying to capture here is that Jesus comes bringing light. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. There's a second picture. We talked about the one with the napalm girl. There's a second picture, and I want to show you this one. You have most likely seen this. It's a Rembrandt painting, 300 years old. And it shows the nativity scene, and uh, it's sort of, obviously it's dark, it's a little dingy. If you look around and really study the picture, as many have, it's Rembrandt, you see that uh, there's a lot of poverty there, there's a lot of want there. But what's interesting about the picture (laughs) is the source of light. There's no sun, there's no candle, the light is coming from Jesus. And Rembrandt is making the point that Scripture makes as well, that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one promised through the prophets that will push back the darkness. Well, in verse 4 we go on and we hear, it's right out of John chapter 1, and in verse 4 we hear about Jesus being uh, one of, who brings grace I just want to say, God loves you. Jesus is the light of the world. I believe he is the Savior of the world. And in just a moment, we're going to have a chance not just to sing joy to the world, but we're going to have a chance to see the light of Jesus sort of spread throughout this room. But uh, before we do that, we're going to go to communion. And I want to open that up and invite those that are going to help distribute the communion elements to come forward. And as they do... Uh, I want to say that communion is uh, open at Christ Church to anyone for whom Christ is your Savior and Lord. You do not need to be a member of this local congregation. If uh, Jesus is your Savior, we would invite you uh, to prayerfully participate. Uh, I am going to pray for us. Then we're going to distribute the elements, take both the bread and the cup, hold on to them, And I will come back up in just a moment and I will lead us as we collectively partake uh, of of this profound sacrament uh, reminding us of the death of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that you sent of your Son, uh, Jesus, the Savior of the world. We thank you that you would love enough that uh, you would send him for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you would accept that assignment of, of complete humiliation and degradation. You'd set aside the glory, the rights, the privileges, the honors that are yours as God, rightfully so, in heaven to come down and live among us and to serve and to suffer. Uh, you didn't hold on to equality with the Father, but you emptied yourself that you could become a man, not just a man, but a slave, and a slave that went to his death, and not just death, 
but death on a cross. And so we thank you for what you have done for us. Spirit of God, meet with us now. Prepare our hearts as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.